Well, the home folks are aware that I'm preaching a series uh, of sermons through the book of First Peter, and uh, today we are ready for chapter three and the subject of marriage. Uh, it's uh, an honor to uh, host so many youth uh, here this morning. Um, on Wednesday evening, um, some of the uh, youth were asking about the uh, subject for this morning, and uh, I think there was a little bit of excitement or enthusiasm for that. Uh, I'm going to exaggerate uh, just a little bit here now, so um, yeah, just uh, take it for what it's worth. I think that it's possible that, well, one of you said that they thought that was really uh, appropriate, and uh, uh, I I think that... um, now, here's where I'm exaggerating. I, I think that um, probably 90% of you spend 90% of your time thinking about who you'll get married to. And um, I think uh, just a couple of thoughts in relation to that. I, I've become very convinced that it's more important to think about and to um, yeah, can be concerned about being the right person rather than meeting the right person. It's more important to be the right person than to marry the right person. Because quite seriously, uh, I think there is a sense, I think you could make an argument that every human being is incompatible with other human beings. And mutual incompatibility is just sort of a fact of of marriage, and if you've been married even for a couple of days, I'm guessing that you would probably maybe have already discovered this or will discover this, that we all have quirks and personalities and habits and strange behaviors, and when two people get married, when you get married, you are getting, in, you are getting married to an imperfect person. And uh, it's further, it's my belief that marriage simply magnifies the pers- personality that you already have. Um, if you're a person who's kind of unkind, if you're a person who's kind of focused on getting your way, if you're a leader, if you're more passive by nature, if you're submissive by nature, or if you're kind of challenging or defiant by nature, I think marriage just brings that out. It magnifies the personality that you already have. And so in many ways, marriage is literally a testing ground. Another thing that's very interesting about this text is that the word love is not mentioned once. But it describes a level of commitment, and it describes a level of, of uh, yeah, heart-level commitment and confidence that we want to uh, groom in our lives. <clears throat> um, I just want to take a little bit of time here to honor my friend Verlin Yoder, who passed away this week. Is a man about my age who suddenly and unexpectedly uh, died. And uh, 
He was a good teacher. He taught at CBS. And uh, um, besides that, he was an even better man, at least in my opinion. Um, one of the subjects that he taught at CBS was the books of First and Second Peter. And uh, my daughter Shannon took his class just last year. A year ago, he was at CBS teaching the books of First and Second Peter. And Shannon came home with a sheaf of um, worksheets and notes and those sorts of things and shared them with me when I was uh, preparing to preach through the book of First Peter. And I have actually consulted those notes uh, at various times. And uh, so, yeah, I just want to... Um, honor Verlin and his uh, ongoing testimony as, uh, yeah, as, I, as I preach here this morning. The funeral is today in Grove City, Minnesota. Let's be in prayer for their family and the church there. He's going to be missed. Here in the book of First Peter, kind of in the middle of the book, there's a section on submission. And I've had this slide here before, so you may remember, uh, we've sort of been working our way through the book, um, sort of section by section, and there's five sections on submission. In chapter two, you have, it talks about submission to government. Immediately following that, it talks about submission in the workplace. Um, bosses and employees, or employers and employees. And it follows that section with a section on how Christ, Jesus Christ, was submissive. It's amazing. He, as being divine, submitted. And then in chapter 3, we have two more examples of submission. Today we're going to look about submission in a family, or specifically in a marriage. And the next time I preach, we'll talk about submission in the brotherhood, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and following. Submission. Now, Peter has a few things to say about that here in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, where he talks about marriage. And um, as you noted, I'm talking today about tender hearts equals sturdy marriages. Tender hearts, I thought about using the word tough marriage. I, it is my personal belief and opinion. I want to share that as I go through here. That tender hearts, being tender hearted, is probably the number one prerequisite for having a tough or a sturdy marriage. And I think this text brings that out, at least as I see it. I'll be uh, talking about how wives can be tender-hearted. I have three points in relation to that. And then four points for husbands and how we husbands can be tender-hearted. <clears throat> in verses 1 to 6 here in our text, he addresses wives. And in verse 7, he addresses the husband. There are six verses for the lady and one for the husband. Um, I have a little bit of a comment about that later on. Um, I think we men like it straight and to the point. Uh, let's just...
be spared the details. Let's just cut to the chase. And he sort of does that here. He gives us a loaded, packed verse in verse 7. And six verses for the wife. Most Bible scholars sort of believe and feel that um, one of the aspects that was going on here in 1 Peter was that these were probably all first-generation believers. And um, so in situations like that, you have, for example, a wife becoming a believer while her husband is not a believer, or maybe I should say not yet a believer. And in that day, I think uh, um, the dynamics were probably just a little bit different than what we have today, and which is normal for any period of time or era. And um, I think it was a very challenging time for a woman to be a believer if her husband was not. And that's true today. That is very true. It's a very difficult situation to be in for any woman to be a believer, to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ when her spouse, her, her husband, is not. And again, I'm suggesting that if you're a tender-hearted person, your marriage can stand, withstand pretty much anything. I'm suggesting, I'm promoting this idea that a tender-hearted person has the ability to have a very sturdy and tough marriage and in the face of difficulty at that. So three marks, three marks for a tender-hearted woman, a wife. In verses 1 and 2, I have the point here that her actions speak louder than her words. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection. Now, I think it is just really interesting to point out here the word likewise. So he has been talking about being submissive to government. He's talking about being submissive in the workplace. He's talking about Jesus being submissive, and then he uses the word likewise, or in that way, in that manner. Be like, likewise submissive. Use what's been stated ahead of time as an example of submission and being um, tenderhearted. Her actions speak louder than words. He says that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation or the lifestyle of the words of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation, that's another word for lifestyle, involves speaking, coupled with fear. Several things I want to point out here, some of the words that we see here. First of all, I want to say the, the word behold, and that's, that has the idea of scrutinizing or evaluating or watching. It has the idea of being, on a, being an observer. So the challenge that he's leaving with these believing wives or these Christian wives is for them to live in such a way that it creates curiosity and for, for the unbelieving husband. 
And then you have the word chaste, and that means pure, probably just as much the idea of being faithful to in the marriage. But even beyond that, I think there's an aspect of genuineness that's talked about here, not fake. Genuineness has the idea of, of, uh, that he's talking about here, genuine conduct, not doing things uh, because of yeah, fakery or phony or anything like that. And then he has the word fear. And I think it's easy for us to pro- probably misunderstand that. I think it's sort of an old word for reverence or just honor. When you um, are um, in a relationship like that, and yeah, the challenge is to do it with, with honor. And I think that's the, a word that could easily be replaced or could define the word fear there, reverence. You see, this is the case of God using that relationship for an unbelieving husband to be brought to salvation, for the believing spouse to live her, way, her life in such a way that, that um, um, calls for uh, change in the husband's part. It is also interesting to note that Paul addresses a similar subject. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he gives um, teaching on the same subject, and he encourages or teaches that it is the primary responsibility in that sort of situation for the wife to, to stick with the husband, to not leave him. I don't think it's proper or wise for a husband to say, well, he's an unbeliever, I'm a believer, so I'm unequally yoked, and so it gives me the privilege to escape the marriage. I'm converted, he isn't. And I can, go, I can dump that guy and move on. No, that's not what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's not what Peter is saying here. In fact, he builds on that, and he says that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife or the believer in that relationship. That's a special set-apart position. And it, it just is another way of saying that God has unique and specific access to the unbeliever as a result of the believer in that relationship. Wives, likewise. That means just like the previous incidents of submission— Submission does not mean some kind of moral inferiority. It does not mean intellectual inferiority. I don't believe at all that submission implies spiritual inferiority. And just like we talked about in some of the previous examples of submission... It's an order of function. It's an order of, it's not an order of rank, but it's an order of function. It's, it's how orderly societies operate. So when you have a government, the government may not even be in a proper or a good spot, but submission is what's called for in order for order to happen in a society. The same is true in a business. An employer may be a jerk. We talked about here in 1 Peter chapter 2 that some of them are not even good employers. 
They're not even good men. But in order for function and order to happen in that relationship, submission is called for. And Jesus' example, and I'm kind of mind-blown here, but it gives that same idea that in order for Jesus to fulfill what was his work to do here on earth, there was a degree of submission on his part. And that's exactly what he's talking about here in this text as well. That in a marriage, submission is an order of function. I also want to just say as clearly as I feel like I can, I do not feel that submission means that a woman should participate in a husband's sinful lifestyle. It does not mean that she has no boundaries. It does not mean that she tolerates sinful behavior in his life or for certainly does not participate in that. John Piper offers this, and I quote, the husband does not replace Christ as the woman's supreme authority. She must never follow her husband's leadership into sin. But even where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ and go against the sinful will of her husband, she can still, in that situation, have a spirit of submission. In that specific time, she can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake his sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. I I think that that just is very well said. That's how I personally feel about it. Let's look at verse 1 again. Be submissive to your own husbands in another translation, that even if some do not obey the word, let's stop right there. What word is he talking about? He uses the word word twice in this text. What word is he talking about? First of all, I think he's talking about God's word. When he talks about obeying the word, he's talking about scripture. And then he follows that up, that the wives may without the word. What word is he talking about there? I think he's talking about her testimony, her words. So he's an unbeliever, and she's a believer. And he doesn't rest in the authority of Scripture, but her words, her actions, have the ability to convince him or to show him They don't obey. The husband is not obeying the word so that it says they can without a word. That the husband can without a word be won by the conduct of their wives. And I know that women are not just like only, uh, I know I'm kind of like this. I think when I'm backed into a corner or I feel cornered, I get the feeling that I need to talk my way out of that. And I think it's a real downfall that any of us um, feel. We, we have an urge to, to um, speak. And I think that's what Peter is confronting here, is challenging us to live in such a way that even without words, our testimony is, is evident. And that's a precarious balance, I know. And it's especially, I think, a challenge for a woman, a wife, 
to try to influence her husband without alienating him, to keep the steadiness in the relationship where it needs to be. It's a very difficult place to be. So her actions speak louder than words. Secondly, the passage here talks about her attitude being her prettiest feature. Her attitude is her prettiest feature. Verses 3 and 4. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting hair or wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. The point that Peter seems to be building on here sounds kind of like Proverbs 31, where it says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she will be praised. And it goes on there to give a lot, a whole list of bullet points and descriptions of a beautiful, godly woman in Proverbs 31. Beauty and charm are deceitful. And you've probably discovered that, haven't you? Here he's talking about incorruptible beauty. That means beauty that cannot be deteriorated. Beauty that can't pass. It's incorruptible. Incorruptible beauty doesn't rely on mascara or lip gloss or skinny jeans. Incorruptible beauty makes a woman look and be, or you could say become, even more beautiful as the years pass by. You see, you can be stunning on the outside while being very ugly on the inside. Here, Peter talks about the hidden part of a person. What's inside is what needs to be beautiful. And that's the inside is what needs to come out. Being beautiful on the inside, more beautiful on the inside her attitude being the prettiest thing about her. The hidden person of the heart is the real you. It's who you are when no one is looking. It's you doing things without you in mind. What if we spent as much time on the hidden person of the heart as we spend on the outside? How much time do we look, spend looking in the mirror, worrying about the outside appearance? Let's, let's spend as much time and energy developing what's inside our hearts. Decorate yourself with character, the hidden person of the heart. Well, he gives at least two or three things here about what the hidden person involves or furnishings in the heart of a tender-hearted woman. He mentions, first of all, meekness. And meekness is just sort of another word for gentleness. You could say kindness. More specifically, the Greek gives the idea that it is power, power under control, kind of like a horse with a bit in its mouth. A horse is a very powerful thing, but the bit in, in, a, in a horse's mouth causes him to be controlled. It's power under control. It's meekness. That's the word picture. A gentle spirit is somebody who's under God's control. It's a wife in this case, a meek woman is a woman who's under God's control. 
Her mouth is under God's control. Her responses are under God's control. Her emotions are under God's control. And that's meekness, gentleness. The next word that we see here is the word quiet. And that simply means what we would think it is. Tranquility, steadiness, evenness, calmness. Sort of like a glassy lake in the morning where there's no breeze, there's no wind. The water is just as smooth and glassy as could be. And I want to say here, I think it is just, it, it is just as true as could be that I think women in general tend to set the tone inside the house for the whole family. And if you are calm, if you are steady, if you are undisturbed inwardly, you have a, you're in a position and in a, a place of influence where you can cause that to infiltrate and permeate the entire home. Tranquility of heart. There might be bad stuff going on all around you. But if you're a steady person, if you're even and calm, quiet in that way, Peter says, it's incorruptible beauty. That is incorruptible beauty. Stuff that can't ever be deteriorated or knocked apart. Her actions speak louder than words. Her attitude is the prettiest feature. And there's a third one here. Her admiration. Her admiration is more biblical than conventional. And when I say conventional... What I mean by that is what is normally done. Conventional is when you do something conventionally, you're doing it sort of like anyone else does it or everyone else does it. But the challenge that Peter leaves here is that a woman's admiration or her mentors are rooted in Scripture. Look at what he says here. He talks about the old times, the former times. And he calls to attention Sarah, Abraham and Sarah. He says, model your relationship. Do it like they did it. <clears throat> he reaches backwards in old times. The holy women trusted in God, and they adorned themselves with this submissive spirit, like Sarah, who called him Lord. And I'm just going to stop right there. That could be a little confusing. I want to especially have you notice that it's not Lord with a capital L. It's Lord with a small L. And it's another way of saying that Sarah respected Abraham. She admired him. She looked up to him. She followed him. And their relationship was characterized by this respect and honor. What Peter is saying here is that we should look to biblical examples. And gals, look to Sarah, not necessarily Joe Biden, not necessarily the Instagram mamas that make everything look magnificent and just on point. Follow the biblical examples. Lord is a term of respect. And I want to just remind you, let me ask it in question form. Was Abraham and Sarah's relationship perfect? No. 
Abraham made some stupid decisions and drugged Sarah into it. It's a responsibility that, that he missed in, in those times. So choose good character, not just good cosmetics. Adorn yourself with gentleness, not just jewelry. Let your bling be your goodness, not gold. And why is that? The text says it. The text has it right here. Why, why do we do this? First of all, God is watching. Look what he says here. It's in the sight of God of great price. See that in verse 4? God is watching. God is looking as, as we, um, yeah, that's why we do this. Because God is watching. It's not so much everyone else that's watching that we should be concerned about. But it's the fact that God is watching. And I believe that if you and I live under that awareness that God is always watching us, it just makes a difference on how we go about things. Four marks of a tender-hearted husband. I've talked to the wives and the women now. And here in verse 7, like I said before, six verses for the woman, and one for the dude, the man of the relationship. And it's packed with four concise points, exactly what is a tender-hearted husband. It's sort of an illustration of how we process things. More words for the ladies, but cut to the chase for the men. Spare me the details. Just get cut to the chase and give me the facts. Well, that's sort of how Peter approaches this. One verse. Four marks of a tender-hearted husband. The first one that I want to notice, want you to notice, is that submission is mutual. For, I talked and I pointed out in verse 1 that he builds on the previous illustrations of submission and he says, likewise, wives. And here he comes to the same idea and he says, likewise, husbands. So you submit in the, to government, you submit in the workplace, you submit like Christ, you submit like a, a wife. Likewise, you husbands, submit like in that same way. Submission is mutual. It's mutual. What is submission in a marriage? This week, um, those of you who are not from Lancaster County, you're probably amazed at the maze of roads that we have here and the condition of our roads here in Lancaster County. Um, I think of it sometimes, even having lived here for all these years. But this week, I drove uh, on the back roads back toward Ephrata, and there's two places where um, on, on route there's a narrow bridge and uh, the one actually has a stop sign, but the other, the other bridge has a yield sign. And I thought of it as I was going um, back toward Ephrata, like I said, on the back roads. And I got to this narrow bridge, and uh, it was a yield sign facing me. I was heading north. And um, so I stopped, and I kind of 
you know, made sure there was no traffic coming, and then I went across the bridge. And on the way back, I followed pretty much the same route, heading south now, and I noticed there was a yield sign on the other side of the bridge as well. And I think it's sort of an illustration of how we do in marriage. Both, both directions. Yielding, submission is important. Husbands, likewise. There is a level of submission that happens mutually in a successful relationship between a husband and wife. And I want to just point out, and I'm sure you've probably heard this before, submission is really not an issue unless there's disagreement, unless there's conflict. If you're deciding to go out to eat for dinner and you decide you want to go to Red Robin or Red Lobster, if you're both in agreement, there's no submission that's in the picture. You're both, yeah, you're both going to Red Lobster. But the difference is if one of you wants to go to Red Lobster and one of you wants to go to Texas Roadhouse, then submission becomes, enters the picture. Submission is necessary and is needed where there's conflict. Let's move on to the second principle. Consideration is necessary. And in this word, in this verse, he challenges husbands to be students of their wives. He says, dwell with them according to knowledge. Husbands are instructed to be students of their wives. It is my responsibility to be a gene genealogist, to learn my wife so well, to study Gina so well that I know how she's feeling. I know what she wants. I know where her weak areas are and what her strengths are. I study her and I become familiar with how she's thinking. That's the responsibility of a husband. There is a yielding that takes place in this process. <clears throat> Dwell with them according to knowledge, understanding. Understand what your role as a husband is. Understand what her role as a wife is. But more than anything, understand her. Understand her. It is so interesting to me that in Genesis 2, where God instituted marriage, and he uses some really interesting words here when he creates, or he, he notices that um, Adam doesn't have anybody to correspond to him. And so God steps in to do something about that. And in chapter 2, um, toward the end of the chapter there, maybe verse 22 or 23, he tells Adam that he is going to make a, or he mentions, the, the text says that he's going to make a helper that's suitable, or the King James Version uses the word meat. And it has the idea of being comparable to, to him, or a counterpart. And that, if you study that, it actually means somebody that's like, but different. It has the idea of polarity, like the North Pole and the South Pole. And in order to keep the Earth, the planet, from going nuts, you have to have both. 
You need a North Pole and a South Pole, but the polarity, the opposite, is called into a focus there. Genesis 2 brings that in from the very beginning. It's God's design. Actually, before the fall, that was God's design. Similar, but different. And it is so important for us men to understand that and to, to embrace that. Men and women are different. Not better, not inferior, not superior, different. And one of the keys to a happy marriage is to understand that. Dwell with them according to knowledge. There are so many ways that studies have been done, it's amazing. Studies from completely secular, non-Christian perspectives. Men and women are different. Our metabolism is different. Our skeletal makeup is different. Our blood composition is different. Our heart rate is different. And there's many, many more. We communicate different. For example, uh, studies have been done. Women, I think, speak about twice as many words in a day as a man does. And that maybe helps us to understand why a woman might feel like he never says anything. And the woman on the other hand, or the man on the other hand may be saying, well, she just blabbers, she just doesn't stop talking. And that's the conflict that, that can create into this, can come into this. So submission is mutual. Consideration is necessary. And thirdly, cooperation is practical. What do I mean by this? Cooperation is practical. Giving honor is the phrase that he uses here. Actually, there's three phrases that talk about this. It talks about being aware that the woman is a weaker vessel. And then it summarizes this by culminating with the thought that we are heirs together. And there's things that could be said about all of these. It calls for honor. Giving honor. And honor is simply something where a person assesses worth or value to something. When I honor an heirloom at my mom or dad's sale, siblings sometimes go crazy bidding for some sort of sentimental item, and the item sells for way more than it's actually worth. It's because that there is honor that's placed on that item. That's the idea. It's... It's in the eye of the beholder. Honor is placed on an item, or in this text, on a person. And it also carries the idea of being respectful and courteous and kind. Those are all important and good words for us men. I heard a story recently about a man who was walking to a, a building and as he was approaching the entrance, he noticed that there was a woman that was also approaching the entrance. And so he um, opened, they arrived about the same time, and so he opened the door for her. And the woman was a little more woke and liberated, I guess. And she kind of gruffly said, don't open the door for me just because I'm a woman. And he very wisely said, I'm not. I'm not opening opening." The, woman, you're, the door for you because you're a woman. I'm opening the door because I'm a gentleman. 
And you know, you know something, men? A gentleman is just that. He is a gentle man. A gentleman is a gentle man. Let's embrace that. Let's be that to the people that we're around. The text here says, giving honor as to the weaker vessel. Again, this does not mean intellectually. It does not mean that. Women, in many cases, perhaps even most cases, are way smarter than the husband that they're married to. I don't think that it means that they're weaker spiritually ever. In fact, I think women sometimes have a, have a more developed and, and a mature level of spirituality. The same could be said about emotionally. I think women tend to be more in touch with what's going on in their minds and their feelings than we men are often. I think it's mostly talking about from a physiological standpoint. And it has the idea that we are to remember to protect those areas, the soft spots in a woman's character, the soft spots in a woman's um, world. Another way of putting this, and this is just in everyday terms, treat your wife like fine china, not like paper plates. Treat your woman, woman like silverware, not plasticware. There's an old country sage that put it this way. He said, if a man has enough a horse sense to treat his wife like a thoroughbred, she won't be a nag. That's just some good practical stuff. And then he follows it up here in the text by saying that it's the responsibility of a man to think of his wife as being, or their relationship as being heirs together of the grace of life. That's companionship. And that's why I say that cooperation is practical. You're companions. You're partners. You're heirs together. And I think that means that you share life together. It means that you eat at the same table at the same time together. It means that you do life together. You take vacations together. You share a home together. Together, you produce life, i.e. children. Furthermore, you share eternal life together. We're heirs together of eternal life, is what he's talking about there in verse 7. The grace of life. Eternal life. It's just important for us to remember always that Jesus died for the woman in our life just as much as he died for, for me, for us. That her soul is just as precious to Jesus as mine is to him. Keep that in mind when you're treating her however you treat her. You're dealing with a child of God. Husbands, remember this. <clears throat> it's also important for us husbands to remember, and I think this verse implies it in different ways. Our wives don't necessarily want more things. They want more of us. They want your honor. They want your approval. They want your input. They want your compassion. They want your companionship. 
And I think that's what it's talking about when it talks about being heirs together of the grace of life. And that brings us to a fourth and final point. In the text here, there's the fourth thing. And it's like this little um, phrase or strophe here at the end of the passage of the text here in verse 7. It says, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Whoa. Division is unprofitable. It is not profitable for a husband to treat his wife in a way different than what verse 7 says. And I, I'd, I'd like to just, yeah, challenge us all. Men, it implies, this phrase implies that if you are struggling spiritually, that if it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, that you need to take a look at how you're treating the woman in your life. Maybe in a broader sense, how you're treating others in your life. But in the text here, especially how you're treating the woman in your life. The word hinder here in the Greek is, like I said different times already, Greek talks in word pictures. And it means to cut in or to interrupt. Here in uh, kind of the edge of Lancaster County, we had an illustration during the Civil War. So the battle was going crazy at Gettysburg, and the Confederate armies were marching up toward Philadelphia, they supposed, and Route 30 goes right through Gettysburg and um, comes all the way up south of, uh, south of us here into Philadelphia. And so the Union Army decided that they're going to take some steps to hinder the Confederate Army, and there was a long wooden bridge covered bridge across the Susquehanna River. And in the war, the Union Army made the decision to light that bridge and burn it. The pillars are still standing in the middle of the, of the bridge. If you're traveling on Route 30 between um, Lancaster and uh, or right there at Wrightsville and Columbia, you can uh, look to the right, you can still see the pillars. It was a covered bridge that the Union burned to hinder the Confederate Army, in case they won at Gettysburg. And that's, that's the idea. Hinder, to interrupt. And if your life is unhandy, if you feel like your life is unhandy, if you feel like things are not working out for you, check how you're relate, relating, check how you're doing with the woman in your life. Evasion of a husbandly duty brings interruption to heavenly blessing. Fudging of your duty as a husband brings interruption to the bounty and the blessing that God wants to pour out on your life as a Christian man. I want to close now by saying that the ultimate picture of a tender-hearted man was Jesus. Compassion was the most distinct emotion that you can see in Jesus' life. He was a tender-hearted person. And my prayer is that God would raise more and more men that are willing to look to Jesus and allow Jesus to impact their lives and that we would live in that tender-hearted, humble, kind way. Ephesians states that God uses marriages between a sinful man and a sinful husband 
human beings to display the relationship between Christ and the church. And I, I just find that almost beyond my mind. I, I find myself falling short in being able to, to describe that. But my prayer is that we would see marriage as the doing of God. And even beyond that we would see marriage as the display of God. I invite you, if you're able, to kneel with me as we pray. Lord, our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're so thankful for your working in our lives, and I pray that you would just continue to give us wisdom, give us insight and guidance. I pray that our lives would be a demonstration of your work in our lives. And I pray for the marriages in this place here this morning and those that are listening in some sort of way. I pray that their marriages would become successful and become like the picture of Jesus Christ in the church. And I pray that you would show us how we can do that. And as husbands and wives, I pray that you would give us hearts that are compatible and in line with the scriptures that we talked about here this morning. I pray that you would give us tender hearts that are soft toward you and soft toward each other. And I pray for all the prospective marriages, marriages that will yet come in the future. I pray that you would place a heart of motivation and inspiration and courage in the hearts of any who are here that are single. And I pray that they would turn their hearts toward you and also allow you to work in their lives and May their hearts be soft and turn toward you as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.